All right, we're going to get into our sermon now. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke 15. Uh, or if you uh, don't have a Bible, there should be a red one close to you. Um, and the passage uh, is on page 510. Yeah, we're looking back at Luke 15, as I mentioned earlier. And we looked at that last week. And um, last week, we really focused on the parables of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. And the emphasis that we made last week was there is nothing that you could ever do uh, that would make you so far lost that God's grace and mercy can't find you, search you out, woo you back to him, and restore you to him. And that was the main message of our sermon last week, that God's grace is just so powerful that it can reach you no matter how far lost you feel. Um, but if you recall, Luke 15 um, begins with both tax collectors and sinners, as well as Pharisees and scribes listening to the message of Jesus. And last week's message really focused on the tax collectors and the sinners. Uh, but there's another party that's listening to Jesus. And we've said before that when Jesus shares parables, he's inviting us, he's inviting his listeners to identify themselves in the story. And so Luke 15 keeps going because there's something that Jesus has to say not only to the tax collectors and sinners, but also to the Pharisees and scribes. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. So I'm going to begin with verse 11 and continue on through the rest of the parable. And as we read this story, we're going to be reminded that, yes, we're never so bad that God's grace can't uh, bring us back to him. But we're also going to learn that we're never too good to be beyond our need for God's grace. So let's read Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and, uh, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods. And the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. 
And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this parable. Lord, not only to be reminded that if we are wayward, your grace can bring us back, but Lord, if we are like the older brother and standing outside looking in with anger and bitterness, Lord, you invite us to come in also. We ask through your spirit that you would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. On September 13th of 2009, Taylor Swift was awarded the MTV Female Music Video Award. And you may recall what happened. As she was going up uh, to receive her award, she began her speech. And just as she began to talk, Kanye West stormed the stage, grabbed the mic, and said this, Yo, Taylor, I'm really happy for you, and I'll let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. And you can imagine Taylor was just mortified, and she began to cry, and she got off the stage, and Kanye was escorted off the premise. I mean, it was devastating for her. But why did Kanye do this? He felt within himself anger and bitterness that Taylor had won the award even though he thought Beyonce should have won. Kanye was angry that Beyonce didn't get what he thought she deserved. That's pretty comical, but something similar is happening in our parable this morning. The older brother, as he's coming back to the house, he hears the music, the celebration, and he figures out that his son has come back and there's a party. And so he feels like an injustice has taken place. He is angry. He is bitter. He stays outside of the house. He will not come in. He does not think that his brother deserves the celebration. In fact, he, he actually says, Father, I, I've been <laughs> obeying you this whole time, and you've never given me a celebration. He deserves that he, he feels like he deserves what his younger brother is getting. In fact, he felt robbed. He felt like he was the one who deserved the party, that he deserved to be celebrated, that he deserved to be accepted by his father the way that his younger brother was being accepted. This morning, I want us to consider uh, three things in this parable. One, How do we get what we want? Two, why that doesn't work? And three, what do we need instead? So first, how do we get what we want, why that doesn't work, and what we need instead? Let's look at the first question. How do we get what we want? We all want to be accepted. We all want to be welcomed and received It's part of our human nature to want to be desired and wanted. We want to belong. Next time you're at the checkout line at Giant Eagle or Walmart, just look at the magazines along the aisle. 
I mean, just the covers themselves are just littered with these messages that say, hey, if you follow this diet, you'll be accepted. Hey, if you work out and have a body that looks like this, you will be desired. Hey, if you dress like these people dress, you will be welcomed. Magazines are just littered with this message that says, if you do this, you will be accepted. They understand what is going on in our hearts, that we have this deep desire for acceptance, for love, for this feeling of being desired. But it's not just superficial things on the outside. I remember when I was in high school, I would uh, run home uh, my senior year in the springtime, and I'd check the mail. Uh, I was longing to receive that letter from the university, you know, the many universities that I was applying to for school. And uh, what I was looking for was an acceptance letter. I wanted to know whether or not I was accepted. I wanted to know if I had uh, studied enough, done well enough in school, performed well enough in my extracurriculars, that someone looked at my resume and thought, I want Jeremy to come to my school. Maybe you remember that yourself. But this also goes for job interviews. You know, we go to job interviews and we would put our best foot forward. We craft our resume to make it seem like we're really you know, better than we really are. We want them to look at us and uh, say, this is the person for the job. We want them to affirm us. And in our culture, we've so associated our identity with our career that to receive a job offer is to affirm who we are, but to receive a rejection is to feel rejected outright. We long to be wanted and accepted. I have a pretty severe case of FOMO. That's uh, fear of missing out. Uh, and it, you know, it really started in college when, you know, my friends would go out and, and hang out and whatnot. And, you know, I, I always had that fear that if I was home on a Saturday night and I scrolled through Instagram, maybe you have this fear too, if I was scrolling through Instagram on Saturday night, my fear is that I would find out that all of my friends were out hanging out, doing something fun, and didn't invite me. That's, my, that's one of my deepest fears. Not just missing out on the fun things, but missing out on being welcomed and accepted. I think that we all desire to be accepted. It's part of our human nature to desire that. In fact, the Bible talks about it all the time. You just probably know of it by a different word. When the Bible talks about us being accepted, it uses the word righteous. That word righteous, you maybe have heard it in church before, but it really is as simple as this. It's a relational word that says, if you are righteous, then that means you have a right standing with God. That's what to be righteous means, to be in good standing in your relationship with God. Righteousness, it's a relational term. And there are different ways, you know, I just said that we try to make ourselves acceptable to our friends and coworkers and family. And there's ways that we try to make ourselves acceptable to God. There's ways that we try to become righteous. And one frequent and destructive way is how the older brother is behaving in our parable. Uh, look at verse 29 with me. The brother says, all these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. This is one way that we try to make ourselves acceptable to our Heavenly Father. We try to obey everything that he has told us to do. 
The older brother has tried to establish this relationship with his own father on the basis of his performance. He's tried to make himself acceptable by moral obedience. And for Jesus' audience, the scribes and the Pharisees, this is who they are. Because they have built up their lives around this idea that they can maintain a healthy relationship with God on the basis of their moral obedience and their ritual, their religious rituals. They've constructed these rules and these practices around themselves that said, hey, if I follow this, if I do this, then God will accept me. But even in the church today, you know, 2,000 years after Jesus' teaching, I think that this is still a problem. Even in the church, which we should be teaching that the way to be accepted by God is by the free gift of grace that God offers us in his son, we tend to, if you'll, you know, really consider it for a moment, we tend to base our relationship with God sometimes off of our own performance. You know, we, uh, we are filled with congregations, people who pride themselves on their moral and religious performance. They show up to every Bible study and every event that the church throws. Uh, you know, they know every answer to Bible trivia. They're in their seats for church every week, even in the summer when it's nice and the lake is calling your name. They're tithing 10% or more on everything, even gifts that they get in Christmas time. Man, they, they know all the motions. They know when to stand, when to sit. They know all the prayers. They know all the words to the songs. And all of these things, which are good things to do for the most part, people base their relationship on those things. They, they look at their life and say, look at how righteous I am because of these things that I do. They think that they are righteous in the eyes of other people and more importantly, in the eyes of God. But in the face of all of that, Jesus is saying in this parable, in the end, none of that matters. In the end, none of that moral obedience and religious ritual matter. Because at the end of the day, even the older brother is standing outside of the house. He is just as far lost as his younger brother was before he returned. So that's how we try to get what we want. But that leads me to the second question, is if that's how we try to get what we want, why doesn't that work? Because I think that does characterize many of us, perhaps in this room this morning. Why doesn't it work? We... Uh, why couldn't the son experience the acceptance that he longed for by his life of moral conformity? Well, let's look at verse 29 again. The older brother says to his father, Look, these many years I have served you. In the original language, that word served is actually slaved. He's saying to his father, Look, all these years when I have been obedient to you, I have been slaving for you. The older son did not have a healthy relationship with his father. And that's the result of his thinking that by moral conformity, he could establish a healthy relationship with his father. And it wasn't because the father lacked love. It's because the son didn't understand what it meant to have that healthy relationship with his father. Look, no relationship can thrive when the basis of that relationship is performance. Think of uh, marriage. You know, no one gets up on their wedding day and stands before their spouse and says this kind of vow. Hey, when things are going well, I'll love you. But when things don't go well, well, that's another story. 
No one says that. You know, no marriage is based on performance. No, what we say is, hey, we, we say, for better or worse, through sickness and in health, through richer and poorer, no matter what comes, I am sticking with you. Marriages thrive when it's not based on your performance. This is why a performance-based relationship does not work. When we come to God on the basis of our performance, be it moral observance or religious piety, we experience the same thing. We experience an insecure relationship. And that manifests itself in uh, two particular ways. Uh, first, it ends up uh, making us feel guilty. Here's how. Look, guilty is that feeling of that pressure, that weight on your back, when you know deep down you have failed to live up to some standard. It, it's that darkness, that weightiness that falls on you when you know that according to God's standards, you have not lived up. And when we try to base our relationship on performance, even if outwardly we can have it all together, deep down you know that you have broken his law. You know that you have failed him. And so that leads to feeling guilty. But secondly, it leads us to feeling anxious. And I'm not talking about anxiety like stress. Like if you have a presentation at work tomorrow and you are anxious about getting it ready. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the anxiety that more comes from, um, like think uh, a relationship. You're dating someone and the circumstances change that it has to become a long distance relationship. The anxiety that comes from wondering, will this relationship hold given the change of circumstances? That kind of anxiety comes when we base our relationship with God on our performance because of this. This is the kind of anxiety uh, that says when we come to God seeking to be accepted on the basis of our performance, uh, we don't know if we'll truly live up to his standard. I mean, we know ourselves. We know how prone we are to failing. We know how easily it is for us to mess up. And so that relationship is always insecure. There's always this worry, this fear that will God actually accept me? Uh, when, when the day comes where it really matters, will I measure up? It brings not just guilt, but anxiety, worry, and fear. That's what results from a relationship based on performance, guilt, and anxiety. And here's, here's how we know whether or not that's true of us. And this story, I think, gives us four indicators, four signs that we might be living like the older brother. Um, the first, here, here, here are some questions. First, do you ever get angry and frustrated when you don't get your way in life? Like maybe uh, you didn't get the promotion that you were interviewing for or the job that you went out for. Do you ever get angry and bitter feeling like, man, I, I worked my tail end off. I feel like I deserved that. Or, or maybe you get jealous that someone else got the promotion and you don't think they deserve it. I mean, you've been working hard and the guy who's only been there, uh, you know, uh, uh, for a year got the promotion before you. Ever make you jealous? How about this? Do you ever feel a sense of moral superiority? The older brother was so quick to point out that his younger brother squandered his wealth on prostitutes. So quick to point out the heirs of one another. 
Is that true of you? Do you find yourself in conversations quick to put down others or to point out the errors in other people's lives? Do you go through Facebook scrolling up and down and have quick judgments? I can't believe they're doing that with their life. I can't believe they're going to vote for that person. I can't believe they said that. What about the way you drop comments in the comment section? Do you find yourself easily pointing out the errors of one another? Third, do you feel joyless in your religious observance or your religious compliance? Do you ever feel like you're just going through the motions? You're not feeling any joy. Look, the older brother said that he was slaving for his father. He was obeying but not finding any real joy, love, or satisfaction there. How do you feel about coming to church? How do you feel about uh, reading your Bible and praying? How do you feel about going through the, you know, the, the sacraments that we do? How do you feel about your relationship with God? Is it that joyless compliance that the older brother was experiencing with his own father? Where do you find yourself lacking joy? And then finally, a fourth question, I think similar to the last one, but maybe a little bit more poignant. Do you love to pray? The older brother ends the story on the outside of the house. The father's come out and invited him in, and yet he says, no, I don't want to come into your presence. I I don't find that I'm welcomed here. I don't find joy here. I don't find love here. Do you love to come to the father and pray and to dwell near him, to draw near to him? Maybe when you look at these lists, um, you find yourself saying, man, I'm like the older brother. I, I do. That's true of me. Like the older brother, when we approach God looking for a relationship on the basis of our performance, we only end up with an insecure relationship, one that results in guilt and anxiety, fear and worry. Man, will God accept me? That's why it doesn't work, because there's no true assurance of God's love. There's no true assurance that God will accept you because you're coming to him saying, this is what I've got. Is this enough? So how, then, to my third point, how do we find that acceptance? What do we need instead? Well, when we talk about righteousness, uh, we tend to think of that word in its phrase, self-righteous, or self-righteousness. And typically, you know, we use that phrase when we talk about people who have this attitude of being holier than thou, or being judgmental, and, and I think that's awful. I mean, we shouldn't be people that are like that, but at its root, Uh, The word self-righteous doesn't necessarily mean that. What it does mean is I am finding my righteousness in myself. I am finding my acceptance in who I am and what I can do. To be self-righteous is to base your acceptance from within. To trust in oneself, one's moral record, one's religious duties as the basis of acceptance. But what we really need to be accepted is not to find a righteousness that comes up out of ourselves, but to find a righteousness that comes to us from the outside. A righteousness that covers us, that welcomes us home, that says you are accepted. What the older brother needed, and I think what we need to see this morning, is just what happened when the younger brother came back home. How was he accepted? 
You know, we learned last week that God searches us out. He woos us back to himself and he offers us forgiveness. But let's just take a look real quick again at what exactly happens when the younger son comes back. Look at verse 22. Well, actually before that, he comes home and he cries out, Father, I am not worthy to be called your son. There's nothing within me that can make me acceptable. There's nothing in me that makes me worthy to be called your child. And then in verse 22, the father interrupts him and says, to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The father gave his son a robe, a ring, and sandals. These aren't just articles of clothing because he didn't have clothes. No, these clothing signified acceptance back into the family. These articles said, you are mine, you are my family, you are home, welcome back. That ring that he got on his hand, it wasn't just a beautiful ring, it was a ring that had the family crest in it. It had the seal that said, you are mine, welcome back, you are accepted, you are wanted, you are desired. The younger brother was right. There is nothing in us that makes us worthy to be called a child of God. There is nothing within us that we can muster up to say, Lord, look at what I've done. Am I accepted? Because he will look at us and say, no. But the father clothed his son with a righteousness that said, you are accepted. You are welcomed. You are loved. And what the older brother needed to hear was he can't have a righteousness that comes from himself. He needs that righteousness that comes from God. We must be like the younger brother, crying out, Father, we are not worthy. And in his mercy, God will give us righteousness. He will clothe us and accept us. He gives us a new identity that says you are worthy. But how is that possible? I mean, where does that come from? It doesn't just come from God saying, yeah, anyone can do it. I'm just giving it out for free. Where does it come from? Where, what do we have to know to understand where this righteousness comes from? The beautiful thing and the interesting thing about this parable compared to most of the other parables that deal with the scribes and Pharisees is there is no rebuke. Jesus does not condemn the Pharisees in this story. The story actually ends unfinished. Because Jesus is inviting not just the tax collectors and sinners to come to him, but he's saying, scribes, Pharisees, come to me. I am your only hope. In me, you will find yourself accepted by God. In me, you will find yourself wanted by God. In me, you will find yourself worthy. Not because you are worthy, but because I am worthy. It is through coming to Jesus that we receive this external righteousness that covers us. Look, he canceled our debt. Jesus canceled our debt when he died on the cross. We spoke about this last week. That the guilt that we feel because we have fallen short of God's standard, Jesus took that away from us. He died and it's done and over. But the anxiety that we feel, that worry, man, have I done enough? Have I worked enough? Have I performed enough to be in a secure relationship with the Father? That worry, that anxiety, Jesus takes away also. And here's how. Jesus, he was the only one who has been perfect. He stepped down out of heaven into this earth to live a life in our place. 
He, he perfectly loved the father in everything he did. He perfectly loved his neighbor in everything he did. He perfectly obeyed the requirements that the law laid out for him. And when he went to the cross, he did not only say, let me take your sin. He says, let me give you my righteousness. Look, the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says this exact thing. There it says, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What Paul is saying here is Jesus, who lived a perfect, sinless, completely obedient life, always loving the Father, always loving his neighbor perfectly, Jesus performed the perfect life. And on the cross, he not only took our sin, but gave us his perfection. He bore the wrath of God for our sin and made us worthy to be accepted by God. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange. And this is, this is the beauty of the gospel. Yes, your sins are forgiven, but you also receive his perfect righteousness. This is the exchange. Everything that you've ever done wrong. I mean, just, let's just go through the Ten Commandments. All right, have you ever worshipped a God besides God? Yeah. H have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? Yeah. Have you ever set up an idol and, and put that thing as most important in your life? Yes. Like we could go on and on. H have you lusted? Yes. Have you had anger and hatred towards someone? Yes. Have you coveted something that wasn't yours? Yes. Have you lied? Yeah. We have all fallen short of that standard that God has written out for us. But in the great exchange at the cross, Jesus crosses out your name on that permanent record and writes his own and says, I will take the punishment that you deserve for your failure. And then he says, Jeremy, here's my record. Here's my perfection. Here's my righteousness. And he crosses out his name and he writes yours. He says, in me, you can become righteous. In me, you can become worthy. Not because we were worthy, but because Jesus is worthy. And when we get that, when, when we recognize that we can only be accepted, not because of our performance, but because of the performance of another, when we truly get that, man, it can change everything. We no longer feel entitled to things and get bitter and angry when we don't get the things that we want. Because we know deep down, we do not deserve anything. But only in Christ do we get everything we ever need. And so when you don't get the thing that you feel like you've been working for, we have the freedom now to not be angry and bitter, but to be thankful and to celebrate with those who do get what they get. Look, when we truly understand this, uh, you know, we, we can truly have joy and love in the things that God calls us to do. Because we know that we're not doing them to work our way up to God, but out of the result of his relationship to us, it frees us to find joy and love in coming here on Sunday morning, in opening up our Bibles and spending time with him in prayer. It leads us to joy because we're not working for anything. We're experiencing the relationship we have because of his son, Jesus. In Luke 15, Jesus invites the tax collector and the sinner to come and draw near because in him alone can they have a relationship with the Father. But he also invites the scribes and the Pharisees, the older brothers, the ones who have been basing their relationship with God on their performance. He says, come, you too, 
come and experience a relationship with me because only in me will you find yourself worthy. Only in me will you find yourself accepted. That's what we desperately want. And we can't do it by ourselves. So let's go to Jesus and find in him everything we need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you, Lord, you invite us to the table. You invite us to draw near to your son, whether we identify as the sinner or the Pharisee, Lord, the message is the same. Jesus is our only hope. He is the only one that's worthy. He is the only one that makes us right with you. Father, we thank you for this message, and we ask that through your spirit it would convict us. Lord, that we wouldn't have a sense of um, superiority. That we wouldn't have a sense of entitlement. Lord, that we would have an understanding that we are not worthy, and yet you make us worthy through your Son, and that overflows with joy and love. Let us draw near to you in the secured relationship that you have made with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.